hello and welcome to the latest episode of the new PNL Principles and Leadership in Business, the podcast series. I'm Paul, host of the new PNL podcast series, and I'm very grateful you've taken the time to listen today. Before we start the podcast, we need to recognize what's going on out there in the world at the moment. It's an anxious time for many and it's touching all of our lives. So, once again, I want to express my deepest thanks and sincerest wishes to everyone and I hope you're keeping safe and a huge, huge thank you to everyone who's looking after us at the moment through this pandemic. Health workers, care workers, shop workers, delivery people, postal people, everyone. Thank you so much for looking after us and we're very grateful to you for it. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes or Spotify or another platform and you like what you hear, please do take a moment to review us. It all helps ratings and rankings. And if you'd like to ensure you never miss another episode of the new PL, please go to principlesandleadership.com and subscribe. We'd love to have you as part of our community. We believe business needs a new PL, one that is as much focused on principles and leadership as it is on profit and loss. Because we know that if your principles are right and aligned with your purpose, and your leadership has a clear vision, focus, strength, and empathy, then your business will be in profit and not loss in so many ways. Today on the new PNL, I'm very pleased once again for part two of our podcast series to welcome Silicon Valley tech and investment entrepreneur, Dr. Philippe Grissou, for the second part of our podcast discussion this week. In part one, we focused on Philippe's book, Aligning the Dots. And in this episode, I'm engaging in a more general chat around Philippe's views on the current state of the financial and tech sectors as it relates to principles and leadership. For those who have yet to listen to part one of this interview, Philippe is a growth expert and author of the best-selling book, Aligning the Dots, a new paradigm to grow any business. He currently manages Blue Dots Partners, an advisory firm he founded, dedicated to helping businesses grow faster. But Philippe has a stellar 30-year career in technology investment, and it's included 10 years at Hashate Media, where he led the business development for the electronic publishing division, and then also Apple, where he was employed by Steve Jobs as director of Apple's Worldwide Internet Commerce Group. And he founded and managed the online Apple store, growing revenue from zero to 350 million US in his short time there. After Apple, Philippe became a venture capitalist and has served on the board of directors for over 20 companies, including the ACG, Association for Corporate Growth in Silicon Valley. And he also holds an MS in physics and a PhD in nonlinear physics and chaos theory, something we're going to touch on at the end of this part of his interview. So, Philippe, once again, a very warm welcome to the new PNL. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us in the second part of our discussion. Well, thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure to be back. Thank you. Uh, as I said, we're, we're having a broader discussion tonight on the technology sector and, and the, the VC sector, which have been... Uh, embedded in for, for, for over 30 years. I'd like to start with a, with a question around the solutions that, that tech startups developed. You know, many of them have developed incredible solutions that have transformed our lives literally and figuratively. And, and we as a society owe a lot to the imaginations and the courage of those who have dreamed and uh, dared to deliver these solutions. And the premise, or at least the public perception that has been built around many tech startups is that they are the, the driven disruptors, the consumer champions, the technology titans that are, that are taking on the establishment on behalf of the consumer to deliver something better. However, there are 
there are also some that just seem to be built on a business model that is less about the technology that liberates us and helps us to evolve and perhaps more about flooding the market with an unsustainable commercial model with deep pockets that promotes insecure employment and forces smaller businesses in an existing market to the wall within a, I guess, with a view of a creating a monopoly over time. So in this sense, do you think the tech community and its VC backers have, have lost sight of some of their purpose in this process? I think in some cases they have, and, and it really depends, you know, how purpose is defined. So to me, amateurish entrepreneurs or VCs are the one who are starting a company with the wrong purpose. And, and for example, to make money or because they have a chip on their shoulder. Uh, so I think it's really important to understand and define the purpose. Why am I studying or am I funding this company? Mm -hmm. What is the real reason? Um, and unless and until the CEO or the founders have a good answer to that question, then I would not touch the business because again, I don't understand what is truly motivating them. Yes. So do you think there's a sort of a case in some instances of hubris over humanity, you know, all about market domination and high returns rather than disruption for the greater good, if you like? Yeah, I mean, this, this happens where a technology is controlled by a dominating company. So in a way, um, it happens in the pharmaceutical industry where a company can control one drug and treat one acute disease and price that drug so high that some can afford it. And while I understand that R&D for new drugs costs billions of dollars, I don't think this is acceptable. You cannot trade you know, people's life for, for money. And so I think in that particular case, we need to find a, a, a more balanced and affordable way to fund research and development for drugs and at the same time make the price at the right level so that people can actually use and enjoy the benefits of, of that drug. What are the... Um you obviously have blue dots now and you've been a, a VC investor for many years. What are your criteria? What, what do you look for from a, a principled perspective when you, when businesses come to you looking for investment, what's the criteria that is set out from a principled perspective for, for blue dots and for your other investment um, lines? Well, I, I think that the, first of all, there are many types of leadership and, and principles and I am not the one who is, professing that one type is the type or is better mm -hmm. than others. I think of principles like parenting, there's many, many style. And, um, you know, I've seen totalitarians approach like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk today, but I've seen the other extreme with, you know, for example, Bracken Darrell, who is the CEO of Logitech, and it was a very democratic approach to managing his company. And yes. in fact, he's, he calls his direct reports, you know, partners, he doesn't, they are not sub subordinates. Um, so, I think that what's important is that there is an authenticity in, in clearly what the statement principles are mm -hmm. and, and how are those principles respected and enforced uh, because enforceability is as important as the definition because if you have principles and nobody cares and you don't enforce them, then you don't have principles. Yeah. So I think the key question again is, is a company has to really think hard about what do we stand for? What is important to us? How do we treat people and employees and customers and so on and so forth? What are those principles? And it cannot be an afterthought. It's, it has to be part of the DNA of the company. Yeah, okay. In, um, 
volume one of the wealth of nations adam smith makes one of his most famous and and often cited references led by an invisible hand and and that has been used time and time again um, over the last few decades comparing it to an invisible hand that guides our our global financial markets that hand always gently leading those markets towards a some form of equilibrium where supply meets demand and so on do you personally believe in the invisible hand principle and if so have we over recent decades moved from smith's invisible hand that guides the market to more of a a rigorous shove that pushes the market in a direction that perhaps only benefits a few well it is true that now pretty much all market transactions made by institutions on wall street and and other trading um, marketplace are done um, by computers Mm -hmm. And, and there are two reasons for this one is the reaction time is is microseconds faster than the human brain can process. And then the other reason is that optimization of trade because you don't you want to take out the emotion that human beings can have. So it, it's a non-emotional algorithm, if you will, that mm-hmm. dictates when those trades happen. Now, there are also market secret brokers in built into those algorithms. So those were um, put together um, in the wake of the Black Monday crash, which was on October 19th, 18, uh, 1987 when the Dow plunged, you know, 508 points, this was 22% um, within just a few minutes. And so what happens is we started to think about that and we say, well, wait a minute, you know, if the market are dropping very, very fast, 7%, 13% and 20%, those are the three levels today, then we have to have circuit breakers that will stop that trading because the computer algorithm is saying the more you sell, the more, you know, the, the, the more you want to cover your, um, your losses and you don't want to lose more so you sell more and in a way you're feeling this whole you know this whole um, this whole spiral which is why this, the secret book were put in place so it's true that those algorithms have been developed by large banks and, and investment banks and, and institutional investors and so to think that they would favor their own business um, compared to the other types of investors, you know, like retail and, and day traders, mm-hmm. is probably true. And so, in that in that sense, I think that this vis- invisible hand is is effectively happening. You mentioned at the top end of that answer, um, these algorithms take out the emotion in terms of the the trading process. I mean, an algorithm is only as strong. It's, it's not a truly objective being in itself. It, it, it may have no agency in itself, but it's still, still subject to the unconscious bias of those who develop the algorithm and make the decision about how it makes its decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, so the output is only as strong as the input. So do, do you think it is a, I guess, a flawless proposition or does it still carry some of that emotion that whoever developed those specific algorithms must put into that process in the first place? Well, I think, I think that it's, it's not flawless for sure. Um, but I also do not believe that they necessarily carry the emotion. What they do is they optimize the outcome for the specific application and purpose mm-hmm. of, that, of that program, if you will. So, and, and that's to the detriment of, of other you know, programs or other other you know market areas if you will yes. um and that's that's why you know this invisible hand happens in my opinion um 
Now, if you talk about AI, then the algorithms are redefining themselves. So the question on where does the emotion fit into AI, AI development and, and algorithm, we don't really know. And, and yeah. that's I think, a really good question. And I think the answer is we don't quite know yet. Yes, yeah. I mean, I guess linked to that, my next question was in, in a in a new PL interview I um, hosted last year, one of the first I, I hosted, I spoke to Tom Cheesewright, who's a respected British futurist, and he had recently released a book of his own called High Frequency Change. And there was a passage in his book where he discussed the evolution of humans and the importance of the development and tools in our evolution, that so much so that in the early periods of our evolution, as we all know, they were a reflection of the materials we had to make the tools with, the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, and so on. And he said the the tool is the solution to the problem. So in order to make the tool or develop the solution, you have to understand what the problem is. So transferring this to the 21st century, as we move into the fourth industrial revolution with AI and automation and everything else, as you just alluded to, do you think business leaders today lack the tools to move to the next step of our business evolution? Or do you think they haven't actually identified the problem to make the tool for? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. So th there are really two dynamics at play here. The first one is that more and more tools are created. So as, as, you know, as you mentioned earlier, I've been in this valley for three decades. And today I have to say that I have never seen so many new technologies, new tools that, are, that will enable huge multi-billion dollar industries. Yeah. So let me give you a few examples. AI, which has been around for a long time, is now finally happening because we have the computing power to make it happen, which wasn't the case before. Uh, just a few weeks ago, Intel released that they created a 10 nanometer semiconductor, which means they now pack 100 million transistors in each millimeter square. And, and to wow. put things in perspective, in 2008, the geometry was 45 nanometers, meaning 3.3 million uh, transistors packs in one millimeter square. So we triple that with just a few years. And it is wow. really remarkable. Yeah. Uh, you look at quantum com computing, which is still very, very early stage, but very promising. And there's already applications today where it beats you know, traditional computing by a huge factor. You look at CRISPR um, for gene editing. You look at re re you know, launcher for space that we can reuse. You look at microsatellites, you look at displays. Mm -hmm. So there's many, many tools and technology that's being creating. And again, those will enable huge industries because they will unlock you know, and they will make things happen that we couldn't uh, do before. Yes. Now the second dynamic at play is the emergence of new problems. So for example, global warming you know, 50 years ago or you know, 100 years ago didn't exist. The, this notion of focusing on recyclable material or renewable energy. And those new problems invite scientists and engineers to come up with those new tools that didn't exist before. So my belief is that there are plenty of tools and there are plenty of problems to solve and, and one kind of fits the other one and eventually you know, a sort of equilibrium happens and tools are deployed and solve problems that we didn't necessarily have or think about before. And then new problems are emerging, which is forcing the creation of new tools. So I think it goes both ways. Okay. What leadership characteristics do you believe business leaders will need as we head full throttle into this next industrial revolution? You know, with all, with all the challenges and all the opportunities that just highlighted that, that this next period of, uh, of human evolution will bring, what 
leadership characteristics will, will business leaders need? Well, I think it's being crazy and being creative. Um, in fact, the crazy ones, as Steve Jobs famously said, are, are the ones that are, you know, that are that think that they can change the world and they actually do it. Mm. So I think we need creative people. We need out of the box thinkers. We need bold people. We need, um, you know, uh, creative people that can come up with those new ideas and and crazy in a way that they are willing to kick the status quo and 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 look at the world in a very different light. And I think those are the leadership. This is the kind of leadership that we're going to need more and more. How does that, um, to go back to sort of podcast one with your alignment principle, precision alignment axis, how do you marry creativity and craziness and in inverted commas, if you like, those who are, who are daring and courageous and perhaps take a leap of faith that other, others wouldn't? How do you align that with the precision alignment axis? Yeah, it's a good question. The creativity comes when you start the company, the genesis of the business. It's like you wake up and you said, okay, I'm going to attack that problem. I'm going to come up with a creative way to solve it. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to create a company. The alignment, personal alignment methodology is really at play once you start to generate revenue. So there are transactions, you have customers. And the question is, how do you go from 1 million to 10, 10 to 100, 100 to a billion, and a billion to 10 billion? And so the creative original entrepreneur is not necessarily the same person that's going to take the company to those level of growth and his, his or her job is really to think about a big problem that really matters and find innovative solution to that problem yeah. after that then the alignment comes at play to grow the business but you you have to see it you have to start it you have to create it initially yes. that's what they say what um what do you feel are the principles that currently underpin um, and, and accepting the caveat that you said earlier that, you know, principles are clearly all subjective um, and, and it's not, a, not an assessment today on what principles are right and wrong, but it would be interesting to know what you feel are the principles that underpin the, the venture capitalist market and what changes would you like to make or what changes do you try to make in your daily engagement in that market? Well, in a way, there are very few principles in the VC world. Um, and there are two types of principles. One is the one that are clearly defined and dictated by the partnership agreement that's signed between the GP, the general partner, and the limited partners, the LPs. So, for example, make sure that there is no personal conflict of interest or no investments you know, in illegal businesses or, or some other borderline industries. Uh, cross-fund investment could be another one that's clearly stated in the partnership agreement. Um, other examples would be the process by which investment decisions are made and, and board governance. So those are principles that are in the agreement. They're very clear and they're fairly um, usual and everybody pretty much have the same. Then there are the unwritten principles. So for example, you know, no harm to the company. I mean, it sounds obvious, but it's not always the case. Mm-hmm. Um, do not throw good money after bad. Um, sometimes there is, there might be a gentleman agreement for distribution when the company goes public. So the, the, the stock is locked up for 180 days. And then the gentleman agreement says, we are going to distribute the shares to the LPs, which will sell those shares, but we're going to do this in a, in a way that we're not going to do hundred percent of the shares immediately, because if we all share, sell our shares after the company goes public, 
then the stock price will be negatively impacted and it's not good for anybody. Mm. Now, there is no written agreement about that. You don't have to do it, but there is a gentleman agreement that's, that's, that's in place with the VC firms that are experienced and it's, it's pretty clear that that's the way things are going to be done. Um, I think there is a gentleman agreement that says the principle of reciprocity. So for example, if you're in a VC firm and I'm in a VC firm and you call me one day and you say, Philip, I'm going to make that investment, you know, would you like to co-invest with me and I do it? Then there is an unwritten principle that says, if I find a good deal, I would reach out to you, Paul, as a thank you. And I would say, Paul, I'm making that investment. You know, I would like to reciprocate and, and, and show it to you and you'd be happy and honored if you were to co-invest with me. Mm -hmm. So. I think that the other one that's unwritten um, is the fact that you're expected to put money in every round of financing. So if you're a Series A investor, you're supposed to put money in Series B and C and D and so on and so forth. If there is one that I would change, it would be this one because this doesn't optimize the return. I, I understand the psychology that says, well, Paul, you, you put money in the Series A and now you don't want to put money in the Series B anymore. Don't you believe in the company anymore? What's going mm -hmm. on? So I understand that psychology, but at the same time, purely from a mathematical model, if you want to optimize your return to your LPs, you should only put money in the Series A. I mean, I'm, I'm making the assumption that the valuation of each series is going up. Yes. So, so that's one I would change. Um, and I think there's nothing wrong to say, I believe in the company, but my model is to optimize my return. Therefore, I'm only going to put money in the, in, the, in the round that I'm participating in, and that's it. But again, that's not accepted and that's actually doesn't go too well with your co-investors and, and board members. Yes. But that's the one I would change. Um, the other one, the other problem I see is bad behavior in, in from certain investors and board members, especially when times are difficult. So people become very emotional. And I'll give you an example. I was leading a Series B investment in a technology company here in Silicon Valley. And we were supposed to close on September 12, 2001. Mm -hmm. Well, September 11th happened and then the, the co-investor of the Series B called me and he says, well, we're out of the deal. We're not going to make that investment. Um, you know, we, we are out. And I was telling him, I said, you can't do that. I mean, the, the fact that the company is the same, the, the horrible events that happen are not affecting the business. You know, we're, we're in a completely different business. It has nothing to do with the business. And I really had a hard time accepting that. So that's one problem I think that I would certainly would like to see change is just the behavior of people and be reasonable and sensitive and don't, don't abuse a difficult situation to renegotiate terms that you committed to, for example. I mean, I guess that brings me on to my next question, which is you've worked for and with some incredible companies and individuals over, over three decades in a range of senior management and executive positions as I outlined in the in the introduction. In that time you will have experienced some great and some not so great leaders and some great leadership and not so great and business decisions as well that that has set every company you've worked for on either a positive or a negative commercial trajectory. What what in your view, with all your experience across the tech and investment and VC world, what in your view are the three or four key attributes that define great principled business leaders? So I think that the first one, and, and it's in a way, it's a way to tie your P and your L in the leadership um, um, and, and principles. I think a good leader has principles and it almost doesn't matter what those principles are, but he or she has to be able to say, 
I stand for this or yes. I'm doing this for that reason. And uh, I don't know any great leaders who don't have, who doesn't have somewhere, you know, strong principles. Now, I don't really care what those principles are as long as they are principles. So the number one principles of a leader is to have principles. The second one, I think, is leaders to me is somebody who makes other people do the impossible just because they are trusted and they believe in that person and they believe in the cause. Mm -hmm. So great leaders don't force. They don't demand respect. It just happens. They, but at the same time, they know when the impossible is barely possible. In other words, they are not asking something that truly is impossible. They know where to put the line. And Steve Jobs, I have to say, was a master of that. He would yes. say to the engineering team, well, this thing has to not be thicker than one millimeter. And the engineering team would rebel and say, Steve, it's impossible. There's no way we can do that. But Steve knew that he wasn't that far reaching, that it's was possible and so the impossible as perceived by the engineers somehow and magically and i've always been very stunned and amazed at this somehow they made it happen and they would <laughs> produce something at one millimeter now yeah, steve yeah. was really smart enough to know that he wasn't asking them to jump the grand canyon i mean he knew that they could do it there was a chance that we couldn't be reachable but he kind of knew where to put that line and to me that's one characteristic of great leaders yeah um, another one is that they make people who work for them grow. They, they want them to grow. They they let them make mistakes and fail, not to put them down, but to help them grow because they believe in them. Um, and then, as I said earlier, they have a mission, they have a dream, and they make that dream very clear to everybody. You may not subscribe to it, and in that case, you don't work for them, but if you do, you follow them and you trust them because of that dream. So if some of the listeners today who may be small business owners or, or, or larger, or they may be young people who are considering launching a business or have just started their business. Those are great characteristics that you've outlined. And they, they may be thinking, you know, I need to focus on these characteristics and strength to help build my business moving forward. What advice would you give them in terms of what are the next steps, those baby steps that they need to take to, to give that sense of authority, to give that sense of trust, to give that sense of creativity and belief to their staff or themselves? What are the next small steps that they could take to work towards becoming a great principled leader, if you like? Well, I think my advice would be two things. One is you have to have authenticity, and two is you have to have belief. So if you have a cause that you truly and authentically believe in, then you will convince other people, not everybody, but the right kinds of people to follow you and to join you in the craziness of starting and building a business. And if you don't have those two things, then you're not going to go anywhere. And then the second advice I would give is what we talked on the first part, which is really thinking very hard and very honestly of why am I starting this business? Mm. What, what drives me? What is the cause? Um, and unless and until they have a clear answer to that question, I would not advise them to start the business. And then maybe another advice is recognize that they may not be the leader to take the company all the way. And most entrepreneurs cannot become, cannot stay CEO uh, for the whole life of the company. And there's nothing wrong with that. And in fact, it, it, it proves character and, and in a way leadership to be able to say, hey, I'm not the right guy anymore or $10 million. I'm, you know, I'm not that interested and I'm yeah. not the right guy to take the 100 million. I'd, I'd like to hire a CEO to replace me. 
And, and I think, you know, great entrepreneurs are good at that and, and they do it and it, it goes really well and everybody benefits from it. Yes. Finally, Philippe, I, I, as I alluded to in the introduction, um, you have a PhD in chaos theory. And when I was doing the background for this, or background research for this podcast, I found the research I did on chaos theory fascinating, but there was one metaphor on one of the online pages I was looking at that was uh, incredibly prescient. And it stated, in terms of its definition for chaos theory, a butterfly flapping its wings in China can cause a hurricane in Texas. And I thought, given the, the global pandemic we currently find ourselves in the middle of and where the pandemic or the virus has spread and how it has spread, it felt to me in a non-intellectual and naive way that that was chaos theory in action. So I wondered whether, from your view, this was the case and also whether chaos theory could play a role in containing the virus by using non-linear principles to also anticipate its spread and perhaps quarantine accordingly. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. So let me share a bit of background about physics and, and what I find fascinating, which is the yep. word, you, the, the, the term you used. Um, the biggest insight I learned from doing research in nonlinear physics and chaos theory is really the lesson of humility. And let me explain what I mean. So in quantum physics, there is a fundamental principle, which is called the Heisenberg principle. It's also mm -hmm. known as the uncertainty principle. And it was invented by a German physicist named Weiner Heisenberg back in 1927. Mm -hmm. And he basically stated that the position and the velocity of a particle could not be both measured in an exact manner at the same time, even in theory. And, and at, when he did that, when he announced that, it was very disconcerting. Uh, it was a very disconcerting revelation that puzzled many, many physicists for a long time. And another way to think about it is that the more precise you measure, for example, the position of the particle, the less precision you will have in its velocity. So you have to make a choice. If you want to know one really well, you will know the other one less and less. Mm -hmm. And in a way, it's, it's a lesson of humility because you will never know both at the same time. It's just impossible. Yes. So that was one aspect. The other aspect, which is related to chaos theory, is that chaos theory basically says that the behavior of certain nonlinear systems can never be predicted because if you change the initial conditions, even by a super small measure, which is the, the butterfly you know, wings you were talking about, yes. then you cannot predict the outcome of that system, even though the system is driven by a set of very deterministic equations, which is fascinating to me because it's like, you know exactly what the equation <laughs> is, but despite of that, you yes. cannot predict. And that's because they're nonlinear. Yes. So that's yep. the second lesson of humility I learned in physics, which is in chaotic system, you cannot predict what's going to happen. Yep. Now, Paul, I have, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but the answer to your question is no. In, in uh, a way, there is no chaos effects in the spread or the containment of the virus. Yep. In fact, the equation yep. that governs the, the spread of the virus are, are very easy and very well known, and they are simply exponential formulas. Yeah. Now, I do believe that chaos played a role in the COVID-19 crisis. And let me explain to you what I mean by this. Mm -hmm. There are many, many mutations of viruses that happen all the time. I mean, many thousands of mutations. Yeah. And for a virus like the, like the COVID, like the, like the coronavirus that we see now, to become such an impact of the world, you have to have 
two conditions. One is that it has the spread mechanism from human to human has to be there because if I don't transmit, then it's not going to go anywhere. Yes. Yep. And the yes. second one is that it has to make people sick. So there's many virus we may have in our bodies right now, but we, they don't do anything. There is no reason to create antibodies or not sick. There's no symptoms. Mm -hmm. So if you think about all the thousands of mutations of viruses that happen in animals, one, you know, particularly happened to be this COVID-19 virus that we see now. And I believe that this chaotic system somehow produced a virus that has such a negative and profound impact on the world today. Yeah. And, and I think that I would not be surprised that if there is some kind of nonlinear systems that would explain the fact that this particular virus, you know, depending on initial conditions that nobody knows what and when they happen, created that terrible virus. Hmm. Well, it must have been a... Um... It must have been a fascinating PhD, I would imagine. Yeah, and, and again, my, what's, what's interesting about my PhD is that in physics, the natural thing is a organized system becomes disorganized and chaotic. Yes. That's typically what happens. So for example, if you combine two springs and you put a little mass at the end and you swing those, that system will behave in a chaotic way, very simplistic, in a very simple way. Yeah. My particular PhD was the opposite. Is there a way that you can force a naturally chaotic system into an organized system? So the other transition, if you will. Mm -hmm. And what specifically the research was on taking dendrites, which is uh, basically crystals, you know, li like um, 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 snowflakes. Yes. And if you grow them in a, in a fluid, in the fluid that you pulse, suddenly the snowflakes becomes organized at the same frequency of the pulsation of the fluid in which it's growing, it's, it's growing at the same time. So we were able to demonstrate that you can force a naturally chaotic system, which is the snowflakes. If you look at the shape of the snowflakes, it's chaotic in, in a way that they were beautifully organized and, and just by forcing it in the function. And that was really what the research was all about. And it was quite fascinating that we could force Mother Nature to behave in an organized way, even though they naturally wanted to be disorganized. Well, I, I've, um, I have to admit, it's the first time I've entered the new PNL with uh, an explanation of chaotic snowflakes. So um, <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> it's, a, um, it's, a, it's a fabulous end to the, uh, to the podcast, Philippe. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, Paul. It's been a pleasure. And thank you again for uh, kindly inviting me on your podcast series. No, that's brilliant. Thank you. Um, for all those interested in having a read of Philippe's book, Aligning the Dots, you can find it at Waterstones here in the UK, Barnes & Noble in the US, online and on, in the stores when they, when they reopen, as well as Amazon, and I'm sure in a host of other good independent online retailers. Or you can go to aligningthedots.com. To all of you who have downloaded and listened to this and other episodes of the new PL, thank you once again for taking the time. And as I said in the introduction, please take a moment to review us. And if you'd like to subscribe, go to principlesandleadership.com. If you'd like us to consider you or a specific topic related to the new PL, let us know. We'd be very happy to chat. So I'm Paul from the new PL, Principles and Leadership and Business. Thank you once again for listening. Stay safe and go well. <laughs>